0: G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode 12 of series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing a startup entrepreneur. It's harder than getting started – it's harder than getting to an MVP. It's harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including several who have already been on Twista, such as Canva, Vado, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. And in this episode our second news special of Series 7. We take a look at the political landscape, at Atlassian's open source term sheet, at the rise and hack of Canva, and much, much more. All of that with our expert panel on this Twista news special. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a brand new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups program, go to startups.uts.edu.au and This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by .co, the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing extraordinary ideas online. Your brand wasn't built to blend in, so don't let it. Get a .co domain that's as unique and memorable as your one-of-a-kind idea. Find your .co today at go.co slash twista and take advantage of freebies, tools, and resources to get your idea off the ground. That's www.go.co slash twista you oh. fair bit has happened since our first news special back in March. So we've drafted two people who can provide some clarity to recent events and tell us what it all means for startups. Dean Durrell is principal at Carthona Capital, having made investments in startups such as Zero Latency, SparesBox, and Credible. Joining Dean is Anne-Marie Elias, all-around connector and lab director at Unboxed, Australia's first well-being and social impact accelerator. Welcome Dean and Anne-Marie. Hello. Hi, Mark. All right, let's dive right in. So Dean, in the last news special of Series 6, you were super clear, perhaps even angry, when oh, you said that folks in Startup Land should not look to politicians or government for help. Now, Anne Marie, in the policy special in Series 7, you helped us to understand how Startup Land might navigate policy development. And we've just had a federal election that delivered a completely unanticipated result of. No change at all. So Anne-Marie, you're close to the Liberal Party. What does this win mean and what does it mean for Startup Land?
1: Well, I don't think it means a lot for Startup Land because what has been obvious is the Prime Minister is distancing himself from an innovation or startup agenda because it was so closely attached to the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. I think that what it means for the Liberal Party is a mandate, um however what i do want to point out as a bit of a political buff it's two seats yeah both state and federal have actually won by two seats which is actually not that great it's
0: not, i mean it's not a mandate except that everyone was expecting labor to win the election
1: yeah but as we have learned in the last few years a week is a very short time in politics or a long time in politics but we, I mean, I was surprised at the outcome, but I think that you've got to give credit where credit's due. Um, Scott Morrison did galvanise the interns of the Liberal Party, mm. the internals. So you see a much more united front amongst the Liberals, which I think is important for any country to have stability in the back end of government. Um, I am a little bit worried about the start-up agenda. However, I think it is up to us and you know, it, I've always said, like, what are we asking government for? I mean, they are meant to set the conditions that are right for us to be able to produce good businesses, but I don't think we can look to them for that. And I think it's really high and mighty time for the startup up sector to galvanise and to grow some and actually represent itself.
0: I mean, Dean, Anne-Marie's taking a page out of the book of what you said in last series.
2: It's the same thing. Leave us be. You know, we can't rely on politicians. They're they're in the business of being elected. Uh, Once they're elected, then they're on a completely different agenda. If we hope as a startup VC community that the government are going to help us in any meaningful way, we're dreaming. We're totally dreaming. People, entrepreneurs and investors need to get on with things and government need to get out of the way.
0: All right. But again, we say this, as you said this last time, and we're sitting in a building that is funded by the New South Wales government. You know, Jobs in New South Wales basically created the Sydney Startup Hub, which is where we record. It's where the studio is. It's become a real epicenter for all the things that the startup community does. So clearly it's not quite as cut and dry. There's more nuance here. Anne-Marie, do we see us, I mean, this has been in some sense, other than some tax policy, this has been the agenda free election, right? There's no, the government won, but there's no, they're not constrained by any policies they said they would or would not do. Do we have any sense there will be any startup policy coming out of this term of parliament?
1: No, I don't really get a sense that that there is. I think that, you know, I mean, I I wrote a, a blog about Just we had in one week two very good advocates, Arthur Sinodinos and Ed Husick wiped out of our sphere.
0: So I wanted to talk about this because part of what happened in the labour turmoil is that Ed, who seemed to know every person doing a startup anywhere in Australia, has now basically been kicked to the back bench. What does that mean for us?
1: I don't think – I mean, look, we can take it two ways. We can take this as if they're setting the agenda – Or we can start to set the agenda and that's actually what I've been saying for five years in the ecosystem. We have to lead. We can't be waiting for the politicians to do it. They have their own agenda, Mm. largely re-election, but also they go on the smell of an oily rag as well. Like, I was thinking last week or two weeks ago, um, Scott Morrison talked about our veterans suiciding. Well, that's not news. And it's not just veterans, it's Indigenous Australians, it's young people. We have amongst the highest suicide rates in the world. But because the Prime Minister has thrown a bit of attention to it, like all of a sudden now people are a little bit talking about it. But I know for a fact that there's about five veteran-led startups that have been pounding the pavement, New South Wales and federal, and being bandied around from minister's office to department, back again, and now waiting for the machinations of government to fall, so that we know where everybody lands in terms of departmental. So surely we've learned enough now. We've had to reset a number of times in the last 5 years and this to me is no different, but it's time for us to lead.
0: All right, so so Dean, one of the things that has changed even if it's only temporary is that for the at least the rest of the fiscal year, we're almost at the end of the fiscal year, but for the last couple of months, the MVP grant for New South Wales was exhausted. It was shut down. I mean, they didn't say whether it was exhausted or not. Do we get a sense that a lot of people were applying for it and the
2: government just wanted to put the brakes on it? Do we have any idea why that happened? Look, I think a certain number of people were applying for it. I don't think it was a necessary part of people creating a business. Now, it was a nice thing to have. Mm. But again, good entrepreneurs will find their way. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't the... Easiest thing to apply for. There was I mean, a lot of paperwork. You needed match funding, for example. It was a maximum twenty five thousand uh, dollars. Only thirty five percent upfront, sixty five percent after completion. You know, there was a, there was a lot of uh, hoops to, to, to jump through. Now, whether they've completely killed it, who knows? But a pausing before the end of a financial year gives us a pretty good sign, I reckon. Yeah,
1: and we've heard the same about the incubator grants federal. They're finishing. This is the last round they're meeting in August, they'll decide who gets the last lot of grants and then that's it. So I think what we're seeing is a reversal of everything that had been put in place. But I also have to say that the MVP grants, all these startup grants, I mean, you opened a window and you got a grant. Yeah. So I think that again, like it's a real opportunity for us to redefine what is MVP, what is startup, what is entrepreneurship, but
0: we have to define it. What well, was interesting, I think the next level up, is, is it the partnership grant, the mm-hmm. next one? up, And that was the one that when I was talking to folks at, for instance, Incubate, that was the one they were focused on. Like, yeah, the MVP is a lot of work. It's kind of small. But the partnership grant, which I believe is still open, is, it was the one that they were aiming for because that's, I think, 100,000? Yeah, maximum 100,000, yeah. Yeah. So is it maybe that what they're learning is that there's a better grant and they want to focus on that and they want to withdraw the grant that maybe is not as effective? Is it, is it that kind of policy tuning or is it just they're just pulling back? Do we know? I don't think we do know.
1: I think, you know, I'd like to see some evidence on their decision-making. So, of course, we've just lost Startup up muster, so we don't have mm. an evidence base anymore. But you would think that all these grants that were given, there'd be some analysis now to say, well, out of all the grants that were given, um, you know, these are the ones that succeeded, these are the ones that didn't. I mean, it's a recalibration. We shouldn't be shutting anything down right now. I mean, Australia needs the the right settings for us to be creative and to go out and have the guts to actually start something. But, you know, I'm, I'm very worried about our, our nation as a whole. And because especially we've set the scene now, go out and be entrepreneurs, start your own business, startup is the way, way to be. And now we've just taken the rug out from under people. So for those people that have just started being awakened to the idea that this is something good to consider... There's not much point because there's not going to be the backing in a grant sense. Now, having said that, Unboxed is fully funded by a not-for-profit. Right. So New Horizons, a 50-year-old not-for-profit, not the government decided to fund the first well well-being social impact accelerator. Right.
0: Right. And I mean, uh, that gives you the surety, because again, if you're coming into startup land and you see government policy changing all the time, that's just going to scare you away. You're going to go, actually, I'm going to go to some part of government policy that's going to remain stable. So that could be agricultural policy or mining policy or whatever it would be. All right. You, you did mention Arthur Sinodinos, who was very much seen as, I think, both being the best brain in the Liberal Party, possibly with Julie Bishop alongside, um, and quite sympathetic to innovation and innovation policy. Is there anyone in the current government who looks to be filling that role? I'm going to get into so much
1: trouble because there is a minister. <laughs> I don't know her. I don't know what she stands for. I don't know what her goals are. So I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I'm quite in the startup community and I can't tell you, and I've been involved with the Liberal Party and I can't tell you. I think that what is important is that we find our advocates, whether they're front benches, back benches or whatever. Uh, I'm going to hedge my bets on retaining Ed Husick as our advocate. Um, I did speak to Ed last week and he said he really wants to focus in on tech for good. Mm. So around tech that's enabling communities, people and all of that, which I think was always an issue in his electorate. Like how do you sell startup in (laughs) <laughs> in Mount yeah. Druitt, yeah. you know, it's. Yeah. I think we we you sort said of it because
0: it makes life better.
1: Yeah, it makes life better. It can create more jobs. It helps people transition from old work to new work, and all those types of things. And I'm going to throw in a wild card here, Jason Falinski, um, who replaced uh, Bishop in McKellar. uh I'm going to focus on him. He is probably one of the smartest people around. And certainly what I've known when he was an advisor to ministers, you you would honestly take people in and he had read all the material, he had all the right questions. So I'm sick of the theatre of it all. I'm not really interested in somebody that has the title minister. What I'm interested in is people that will listen. And I think that's the attribute that both Ed and Arthur had is they may not have known everything, they may not have done a lot, but they listened. And they were teachable. And they were teachable.
2: Also, we lost our minister in Craig Laundie. Yeah. Now, when you look back, there Avcal put on a, a VC conference last year. Both Craig Laundie and Ed Husick talked very persuasively. And because one was there, the other one was there. It was almost they were vying for that attention. He's, he's lost the politics. You know, he was an entrepreneur. He was, you know, he, he knew small business. Um, losing people of that caliber is, is a real issue for the country. There's no doubt about that. You're listening to this
0: week in Startups Australia News Special, and we will be right back. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing Send Pro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. Send Pro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated, accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. Send Pro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more visit pitneybowes.com/au/twista Welcome back to another news special on This Week in Startups, Australia. We're here with Carthona Capital's Dean Durrell and Anne-Marie Elias of Unboxed. Okay, so Dean, last week Atlassian dropped their open term sheet. What is
2: that? So they've made 20-plus acquisitions, uh, some big ones in Trello, uh, Agile Craft, and OpsGenie. They say um, that that M&A process, to quote them, is outdated, inefficient, and combative. Now, they say, you know, quite rightly, that big buyers are bullies. But they insist on favorable terms against small businesses. Right. And so I guess this is a, a – come from their recent history and a data-driven company, and I guess they're on the acquisition trail. So they're trying to make it easier for themselves but also make it easier to buy companies yeah. and for – Uh, to do it in a collaborative way so that the entrepreneurs that come in stay with Atlassian. So they've made uh, actually a couple of quite big concessions. Um, In fact, the the actual term sheet, um, any good lawyer could give you what the the standard terms would be. But really, they were talking about the escrow, the holdback of the amount they buy. And they said that usually it's between 10 and 20%. And that they think that the right amount um, is uh, somewhere around 5%. So they've given uh, out, outlined terms on which they will acquire companies, uh, and given uh, people a choice. But essentially, saying five percent escrow for 15 months, they'll look after the fraud side. They said they don't intend in, in being in business with people that are fraudsters, and they think they can tell that. But I think I think it's a sensible way. I think it may be a bit of marketing to to mm. companies that and to future employees that would be interested. Yeah, but I think um, it, it it strikes me it's it's come from. The, the very core of what that company stands for, and it 's no wonder that they 're such a, a brilliant company and led by two people that are very important to the local e- ecosystem yeah. and i think they 're showing their colors
0: you 've guided your some of your own companies through m a processes when you talk about it sometimes being adversarial is that something that you would expect when you walk into m a or would you expect it to sort of be roses i mean if you 're an entrepreneur. This is, I think you, you want this, and so you, you're kind of expecting it to be roses. You're not expecting it to be confrontational. My God, they want me. Why are they Why are they strong-arming me like this?
2: Uh, in my experience, which is 30 years, it's usually adversarial, especially for startups that are bought by strategics. Um, to keep them out of the way? No, it's just that you're dealing with a big company. Right. Um, they're not used to buying high-growth, uh, innovative companies. Usually they're buying businesses on EBITDA multiples. Right. They have certain um, metrics that they will buy the business on and they really struggle to find the right uh, framework internally to get those type of deals done. Because they're not that kind of business. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons they're buying yeah. younger mm-hmm. companies yeah. is that they're buying that innovation and we're increasingly seeing that. We've been in uh, a few of those discussions quite recently um, and the, the process isn't perfect at all.
0: So Anne-Marie, you have a whole bunch of social companies in Unbox. Do you provide them with the kinds of legal frameworks that they need, either open source tools or just access to legal tools, so that they can work without the same degree of cost that maybe a more commercial startup has to? So we're a startup as well. So we're finding our
1: way at the moment. Um, you know it it has been really difficult we've modeled ourselves on existing accelerators like D, so but we're, we're we're really are a not for profit mm. so i think i will reserve my right to answer that question for in, in 12 months time but you know it it is difficult because we've got a 50 year old legacy not for profit organization that started out as a social enterprise 50 years ago it has proven that it grew up and became a viable business. It is independent. Um, is, it is funded by government, but it has savings mm. uh, so that it really did operate as a social enterprise and not a charity. Um, I don't know how they're going to be when we when we have to look at our first big tech startup yeah. because I think there is going to be a tension there, a tension of, but we made you. <laughs> we, we helped you get there. Uh, and we're not-for-profit, so I don't really know what those conversations are, and I don't know that there's been an accelerator of this kind backed by a not-for-profit. Yeah. So there are not-for-profit accelerators that are backed by corporate, but this is the first time this has happened. And mind you, uh, New Horizons is not new to mergers and acquisitions. It has done that. Um you, you would hope that as a not-for-profit, it has a softer side around those types of things. But it's a business and it needs to survive beyond the next 50 years. And that's what the goal of this accelerator is. It's like, how do we seed and get them to invest in the businesses that very are likely to disrupt them in the future? So we're
0: learning as we go. Okay, so all of these tensions are really quite common to anything where you have high-growth business versus just a standard, a more standard business. And, I mean, I've seen this as well when you have incubators that are done inside of companies and they suddenly spin up a high-growth business and they're completely unprepared for the fact that they've got this high-growth business and they just attempt to strangle it because it's seen as an interloper. All right, Dean, is there a space for other businesses to follow Atlassian's lead and to create their own versions of an open source term sheet so that people can have a better understanding if, say, Google or Amazon or Apple or whoever want to acquire them?
2: I think there is, but I think that type of initiative needs to come from modern companies. So uh, like the tech companies, the new companies who have got much more open uh, and welcoming atmosphere, especially to uh, new employees. I think traditional businesses are so busy trying to work out how tech is changing and, and killing their business that they don't have time to to either think about uh, innovative acquisitions. Uh, at least, you know, they're, they're trying. Many companies are trying to do that, but the to see them. Open sourcing their documents, I think, would be very difficult. Okay.
0: So this actually gives us the perfect lead-in because probably one of those high-growth companies that's going to be acquiring now is Canva, which is incredibly cashed up. Because Canva just got, I think, another $200 million in investment at a $3.6 billion valuation. So this is now there's beyond unicorn. How is that justif- uh, how is that valuation justified, Dean? Because I have a friend who basically, who knows Canva, knows the founders, knows it from the beginning, laughed when he heard that. Look,
2: at the, it, we're in an open market. So when there's a willing seller and a willing Mm. buyer of equity, then that's the market. It's justified. In early-stage businesses, and Canva, whilst, um, you know, purportedly has 100 million US of revenue, it's high growth, um, there are no hard and fast metrics. Um, Some of the smartest people in VC in the world have invested. Mm. So you've got, uh, you know, Bond, Merry Meekers, uh, have invested, Blackbird have have gone again, um, and it's a profitable business. So, and it looks to be growing. Oh, so, it yeah, it's for sure growing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's there's no way that someone would be paying that sort of valuation without a business that's really growing, and and also the size of the market that they can expand into is also um, incredibly big. Yeah, well, if they can resist being bought by Adobe, because Adobe must be trying
0: to buy them now, because they're eating Adobe's core market.
2: Yeah. Look, right. um, one of the complete successes of of being able to have a valuation that big is to avoid all the temptations to sell earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they've had plenty yeah, of yeah. temptation to sell at oh, yeah. 100 million, at 500, at a billion. And they're all great valuations if you've started the business. So, look, there are there are some metrics out there. You know, when you think of some of the more recent IPOs uh, for SaaS based businesses, mm. they've had incredibly high revenue multiples. Right. You know, if you think about something like uh, Slack, which is up nearly 50. Yeah. percent um, it's not profitable. Uh, the valuation is probably 50 times revenue. Yeah. Um, Zoom, probably between 80 and 90 wow. times revenue. Okay. Uh, but profitable. Okay. So... Okay, and so, so in, uh, by
0: that metric, then, Canva's only 40 times at that valuation line, even 40 times, 35 times. So that is less insane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to thinking 4 or 5x mo- revenues, but yeah. That's I mean- for
2: mature businesses. You know, if you look at... Um, the public SaaS, you know, then they're around the median's like nine times revenue, um, but there are some some of publicly quoted um, SaaS companies with 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 high um, revenue multiples. You know, there's there's plenty of uh, twenty times revenue, and those companies won't be growing as fast. Mm. So, look, I, I hear people saying that all the time. our oh, valuation is nuts. Um, I'm not sure that's right. All right, so.
0: Literally on the back of that news, there was the other news, which is that Canva had an enormous data breach and uh, something around 100 million records were stolen. And because of the laws that we have in Australia, the data breach laws, they had to notify the Office of the Privacy Commissioner and tell them what had happened and everything they knew about it. And then maybe notifications were made. So, Anne-Marie, we now have a time and a place where we have companies that are going very fast, have huge amounts of data associated with them. Do we feel as though, particularly in the early startup stages, you have startups that are going to be dealing with very personal, very intimate yeah. data. Do you see them exerting the kind of duty of care over that data that they're going to need so that that data stays where it's supposed to and doesn't end up where it's not?
1: Well, our parent company, New Horizons, ensures that. I mean, they've been managing the data of vulnerable people for 50 years.
0: So you inherit that. So they get it kind of as part of the deal.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that we're doing is we actually have a paper trial first. So we've got mock-up of our customers so that we can test things without touching our customers. We are going to be very protective of vulnerable people, mm. but we need those vulnerable people to test these products to see if they're valuable to the market or not. So there's always going to be that tension in, the, in this space, I think. But I remember about 10 years ago I worked in family and community services and I brought the data people from health, education, family and community services and police together in the room, never done before, and I told them to share their data yeah. And they went into conniptions. Oh, but you don't understand. It's private and so forth. And I had somebody from the startup sector who, was, who had a PhD in data who basically said we de-identified data a very long time ago. It is safe. So I think we really need to understand what we're talking about, the safety of data. I mean, our data is out there. Yeah. It's so out there. Centrelink has our data. Medicare has our data. So it's not about the data. Plus, we've now impressed upon people, in my humble opinion, in the last five years, data's the new gold. Data's the new oil. Go get your data. It's a data-driven world. So one thing I do know is that a lot of startups are getting scared about our laws here and are starting to rethink their company structures on that basis. But I I don't see – you know, data breaches is a whole other parallel universe – but for organizations like New Horizons, we have our data practices and our due diligence around who even gets to touch that okay. data. So,
0: so because you have 50 years of history, yes. you have good practices in place. Okay, Dean, on the other side of the coin, you have a lot of startups, particularly SaaS startups, just starting up. They just care about growth. They just care about building a customer list. And they don't really reckon on what they need to do to protect that until after there's an intrusion.
2: How much guidance do you give them around that? Look, we tell every company that we're involved in, every company we see, that eventually you'll get hacked. Yeah, it's inevitably inevitable that you're going to get hacked. Um, I think with Canva, they they weren't special. It was a, it's a, a well known hacker who's hacked over fifty companies, got a billion uh, user details, and um, Look, there were details out there and it's not it's not great. But the the passwords were, were hashed. Yes. Oh Pop- yeah. No, no, Proper no, no. encryption. The data practices of the how the data was stored were good. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess one thing they could be criticized with was when they told people about the breach, mm. they led with of what people called a fluff email talking about how wonderful things were at the company and know, by, the, by the way, by the, way at the bottom <laughs> We've been <hacked>. oh, no. <laughs> by the way change your passwords immediately and cancel your credit <laughs> look, cards look, they they did they did they got criticized pretty quickly and they did change it yeah. so look that's the way it goes um i think that um going back to your original question um we tell companies, especially the ones that are dealing with sensitive data, they have to be very, very careful. And security is right at the top of the list in, in what they have to consider. Now, when people are using cloud services, yeah. they inherit a lot mm. of good security practices. But most hacks come from cracking people. It, it's it's a social hack. Yes. It's a way of, of phishing people or getting people to click on, on malicious links and People, you know, people are going to do that. However many times you tell them not to do it or you practice or whatever, they're going to get hacked. So- well, and because, because
0: it's a moving target, the phishing always gets better as well. And if something doesn't work, they'll try something else. All right. You're listening- so that's
1: actually about the team. Sorry. Like, so one of the things that we do look at is who's in your team and who has the skills. Because, you know, we get a lot of founders that are non-technical, a lot of founders that are non-data specific, more they have other skills which is great that's how they start businesses but one of the keystone areas that we really look at is who is your team where is your data stored where is your data stored because mm-hmm. if it's not in australia we need
0: to ask those questions you're listening to this week in straps australia news special and we will be right back Developing entrepreneurial skills is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. UTS students are creating their own jobs and starting their own companies through the flagship program UTS Startups. Within its first year, the program has launched more than 200 student startups, and they're just getting started. Equipping students with the tools and expertise to become entrepreneurs, then connecting them to industry partners and the startup ecosystem is all part of their innovative approach. UTS is connecting thousands of talented students to industry and works closely with a network of partners to match students and startups through their startup internship program. As a leading university of technology and Australia's number one young university, UTS is investing heavily in this future right now. UTS's inner-city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for digital and creative industries and the startup community. Join them on the journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. we're back on the news special with Dean Durrell and Anne-Marie Elias. All right. So if we look ahead onto the next news special, which will probably be toward the end of the series, so about five months from now, will we be in the middle of a trade war, East versus West, roughly put? I mean, we're already seeing what's happened to Huawei. Huawei is basically on a list now with North Korea, right? And it has caused the implosion of the, the second largest smartphone maker in the world. What does this look like in five months?
2: Well, the election campaign in the US has started, hasn't it? Mm. Yes, it has. So say what you like about Trump. He's a businessman. He's a negotiator. He just put some chips on the table and he can be playing with some of those chips. In my mind, he's not someone who's going into an election next year with a full-blown trade war, the stock market through the floor. This guy, he doesn't, I don't think he cares really about... Uh, the legacy of the country and sorting the trade terms out against China in a global context over a number of decades. I think he cares about having something that he can claim. You know, he always talks about his wonderful letters with, with, uh, with the presidents of China and North Korea. I, I think he's playing a game. And Marie, do we, I mean, Australia sort of slides back and forth between
0: being close to America and doing lots of business with China, which has now stuck us in a very hard place. Very. Here. <laughs> Where do we move around that? Have we lost our ability to sort of fub that anymore? I think we're so
1: enmeshed uh, economically with China that we really can't not accept that we have a big trade relationship with China. I think they're buying up all of our farms, for example. Um, So I think from this point forward, it's how smart we get, not how clinical we get about it. I mean, the reality is... China is a big player. Mm. They, they are doing business in this country. So I think it's more often in terms, you know, better terms for them than for us. But I think now, I guess, the next five years is going to be super important for Australia to really start thinking where our relationships are. We are placed in Asia. Um, they're the people buying our goods and services. They're the people buying our land, our property. So I think we need to rethink that.
0: I I wonder if to take a couple of ideas and stick them together here. Maybe Australia doesn't need an open term sheet for dealing with (laughs) the Chinese. Like, here's the deal. Here's how we want it to work. All right. Last week, probably the biggest news uh, in technology of this decade, Facebook took the wraps off of its Libra cryptocurrency. They're the 900-pound gorilla, and they came with their 900-pound gorilla friends, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. I think Goldman Sachs is in the list. Uber, Lyft, a really large selection of companies. Dean, what do we think this means? Is this the legitimizing moment for cryptocurrencies where everyone has to take them seriously? We already saw Philip Lowe make a statement on it, the chair of the Fed, the uh, governor of the Bank of England, the governor of the Reserve Bank of Canada. So all of these very powerful, fundamental individuals in the financial system have had some comment about Libra.
2: Yeah, it's it's incredibly interesting. I think it's a real maturing of the sector. Mm. I actually don't think it's necessarily good for cryptocurrencies as a whole. I see this as a uh, a commercial stable coin. So to say, to explain that a bit more, every coin that's created has to be backed by a fiat currency or something that's proxy to it, government right. securities. Okay. So wild fluctuations or not knowing What the value of each coin um, is is taken away, right? And you wouldn't do an ICO, for example, because an ICO
0: is sort of based on this idea that it's going to accumulate value like an investment, and that won't happen with
2: Libra. Yep. And one of the problems with with cryptocurrencies they stand at the moment has always been: is it an asset? Is it something to store wealth in, or is it a medium of exchange? Mm. Now, um, as mediums of exchange, they've proved extremely difficult, very hard to scale massive consumers of of energy yeah. globally um, and to be honest uh, internally for our our play has always been to wait for something like this mm-hmm. where a big corporate or many corporates back it yeah. so the the fraud or the running away or the the Currency completely falling over, right? Just Stop. just from lack of traction, yeah. even. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, I don't see this completely as as a Facebook play. I mm. see Facebook leaning into this, mm. but it's clear that they have one voice amongst many others, and actually, I see it as the modern rails of a new financial system. So it's a way for uh, financial transactions and data to be to be shared and. Um, those transactions to be on solid rails that are not legacy. Right. So, Anne-Marie, one of the things that
0: we know will happen is that if this does become the, the ledger of all the transactions, well, Facebook will be able to run analytics on it, as will all the other partners. For people who may be serviced by Unboxed. so. You know, vulnerable communities, do we have to now start to think about creating a space for them to be able to trade that doesn't leave the same kind of trail? For instance, does a woman who's seeking shelter because she's being abused by her husband now need to protect her financial instruments differently if they can all be tracked that way?
1: Well, indeed. And it is a very good question. And this is, I guess, the tech for good aspect of it. And there have been some people in the blockchain community looking at. Uh, financial security for women escaping DV where you can actually keep your wallet separate where your partner or ex can't access it. So I think, you know, all of these things have a positive and a very dark side. The one thing I do want to observe here is monopoly, oligopoly. What on earth are we doing? Like that scares me because we we have actually got a lot of uh, big corporates coming together And, you know, one of my fantasies about Facebook, if only he'd just let us own our own data. You know, we could have all made a little bit out of it. He could have made a little bit out of it, but that wasn't his intent. So I think I'm still hoping for a player to come out where we own our own data and where vulnerable people can trade their data, you know, for good to actually improve policy and things like that
0: in the future. So... Dean, I think the thing that we now know because of Libra is that, as Anne-Marie was pointing at, it's not going to be just Facebook's game. You'd have to expect that Google and Apple and Amazon Mm -hmm. and Microsoft are all now sitting back and considering what they need to do around this. So the FANG companies, is, is there going to be a Netflix coin, right? So in fact, will we see not just that Libra rolls out, but perhaps If we do a new
2: special a year from now, there's going to be four or five of these global coins competing? I think we might well see that. I don't think that Libra will have the field completely to its own. What I think might be interesting is to see what the central banks react to it. Do they say, okay, the financial rails are going to be in big corporate, not necessarily with, uh, with good intentions. It's going to be in their hands. Why don't we have digital Aussie dollars, digital euros, digital US dollars, digital yen, digital sterling? Why don't we have that and provide the means of exchange for that? And
0: we know that the Federal Reserve worked with IBM on exactly that three, four years ago. We know that the Swedes are doing that right now with the corona. We know that the Singaporeans also worked on it. So you're right. I think the space now for them to do it, the door is now open. All right. Anne-Marie, Dean, thank you very much for being our amazingly wise and expert commentators on this week in Startups Australia's new special.
1: Thank you.
2: Thanks, Mark.
0: A strong online presence is non-negotiable in today's market. Whether it's your primary location for sales and trade, or you just want to have some key information online so people can discover your business, your website is the core of your online brand. And when it comes to choosing a domain name for your website, there are now countless options of domain extensions to choose from. But if you're looking for a domain that is short, SEO-friendly, global, and truly supports your business, go with .co. .co is the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing their extraordinary ideas online. With more names available than any other legacy namespace, .co is for everyone who is hustling hard and building something awesome. With freebies, resources, and tools for startups available, even to those without a .co domain, check out www.go.co.twistatoday and find the perfect .co domain for your big idea. .co where big ideas belong on the web. One thing that all startups want is a guarantee, a guarantee of customers, a guarantee of a product shipped, A guarantee of funding. It all goes on. Always guarantees. And we look to whatever we can to find those guarantees, whether we're looking to government or we're looking to a venture capitalist or we're looking to the market. We're always looking for a guarantee. The problem is that the world doesn't offer guarantees. Now, every entrepreneur instinctively knows this at heart, but it's always hard. And when you see the uncertainty that's confronting even the largest institutions, whether they're governments or central banks or the largest companies in the world, when you see the kind of uncertainty that they're confronting, you can understand that the entrepreneur is really only reflecting the same uncertainty that we see in those great big institutions. Big thanks to Twisted sponsors, Pitney Bowes, UTS Startups, and .co. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Dean Durrell and Anne-Marie Elias for taking the time to come onto our show. Now, last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. So check it out at TWISTartupsAUS.com. We're going to take a bit of a break now for winter, and we will be back in the middle of August with plenty more stories from startups in Australia. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.